When we think about uh, how great is our God, the, the, I've shared with you in the past that the, the Greek word for great in the New Testament is mega. So how great is our God? He's mega God. And there's, there's no, there is no comparison to God than any other being in this universe. And that's when we, we come to grips with the, the nature and character and the revelation of who this God is that we worship every Sunday. He, he is beyond comparison. And so as we uh, seek to to worship and to learn from his word this morning. This, let's remember who the author of this book is. It's not a, it's the, God used human authors to record what he had to say, but this comes from him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you uh, have called us to be a place where we can openly worship you and sing praises to you, to recognize that you are a great God, a mega God, and the mega God, the only one and true God that you desire us to know you so well that you have given us words uh, from yourself that we might discern who you are, who we are, and how we're to live. And we just really pray this morning as we look into what's going to happen that it might cause us to live now in a way that pleases you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we restarted our series in the book of Revelation last uh, Lord's Day, and uh, we continue on. And we began with the 19th chapter of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 19. And uh, we'll be looking at section there. And in that section, what we really uh, see is is really the, the culmination of what we've been anticipating. At Christmas Advent, which is coming, uh, which is the coming of, the, of Jesus the first time, the, the coming now is the coming of Jesus the second time. And, and what's going to happen when he comes? Uh, the book of Revelation really is, a, is a, a book in which, we've said this over and over again, which tells us what is to come as well as who is to come. And we're going we're gonna to focus on this this morning at that particular event, that time in history which God has ordained and which he's going to arrive on the scene. And, and the message title is pretty simple. It's time to get ready. And in the midst of the detail of the outline, sometimes I give you a detailed outline, but really it's, it's a pretty simple message. It's three things that God wants us to be ready for. He wants us to be ready for the awesome one that is coming, the armies that are coming, and the Armageddon that is coming. And we'll look at that, but that's, that's really what I'm going to wrap around this section of God's word for us. Are, are we ready? And primarily what we ought to be ready for is the one who is coming. If, uh, you know, I mentioned to you earlier that, you know, one of the biggest questions, you know, for many of us after, after church of, if not where we're going to eat, what we're going to eat, right? That's a big question. And if we knew someone was coming over, we, we would probably be even more ready for what we're going to eat after church, Right? Because we wouldn't want to be prepared for them. And if it was someone that, you know, maybe uh, we consider not that important, we might put, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the, on the table or whatever it might be. But if it was someone that was important, we would do everything within our means. It doesn't have to compare to someone else. But we would give our very, very best to be ready for when they showed up. And really, that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's, it's pushing us to see that we're ready and helping everybody that we care about to be ready for the one that not might come, but is going to come. And there were doubters then as well as doubters now that wonder, well, it's been a long time. Is Jesus really coming? Is he really going to show up? Which is interesting. You know, some of the things I've read in, in polls, religious polls that are taken by non-religious poll makers, but they, they'll ask people, do you believe in the coming of Jesus? And at least in America, 66% of the people in America believe that Jesus is going to come again, which is interesting because only about 40%, 41 or 42%, say they're born again. 
So you got a lot of non-born again people, or at least people say they're not born again, believing that Jesus is going to come again. Now, I, I, I'm not going to try to put America on a, on a couch here and you know, psychoanalyze them. Well, why is it you don't believe the whole thing, but you believe it might be coming? But there is a sense that this world it has a destiny, and something's going to happen. And, and if you believe something's going to happen, then you better be ready for what might happen. But more than what might happen, you need to be ready for who is going to make it happen. Who is coming? And you can use a lot of names for, for describing Jesus, but I just picked this one because it began with the letter A. This message is given to you by the letter A. The three fill in the blanks. The main points are all begin with the letter A. But the awesome one is coming. Now let's look at it as we, as we read the text. Last week we left off actually on verse 9, but let's read verse 10 and then we'll get into the section that we're going to study this morning. Right after he talked about that we ought to be ready to praise God, it's time to praise God, and he gave us a reason we ought to praise God, which is, which is not circumstantial, which means if we only are prepared to praise God when good things happen, then you know, our praise life will be somewhat you know, roller coaster perspective. But we can always praise God because of who he is, what he does. He is the one on the throne. He brings just, justice ultimately. And there's a party that's going to happen. There's going to be a celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when, when God, we celebrate what God has planned for his people. But after John got that message, in verse 10 it said, Then I, this is John, the author of this book, or human author, fell at his feet, and his feet is the messenger of the message from God, but not through God directly, but through a heavenly messenger. And a heavenly messenger, in contrast to an earthly messenger, is called a what? An angel. So an angel has been giving him this message, and he is so overwhelmed with the truth of the message and the, and the manifestation of the messenger that he, he deifies the messenger. He, 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 he falls down and worships him. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. And how many people in this, this universe are to be worshipped? Just one, right? And, and so the response of the angel is very, very uh, pronounced. But he, the angel, Angelos, um, said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. And that's why, you know, we've talked about before, every Christian in the Bible is defined as a saint. Doesn't mean we always are saintly in how we live, but we are saint, in other words, that means to be set apart for God. We're also, you could say, we're all angels. Just turn to the person next to you. You are a nice-looking angel. Okay, it is uh, because an angel simply means messenger. We are all messengers of what God says. Okay, and so this heavenly angel says to John, who is an earthly angel, "What are you worshiping me for? I'm just like like one of you. I just my address is a little bit higher up than you are. You know, I'm living in heaven. You're living here now on earth. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God." For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, and that's, the, that's just a sad thing about someone, you know, down there with a bullhorn with, you know, a you know, big banner and stuff like that. You know, who think they're modern day prophets telling everybody else, you know, they're wrong and they're right. The spirit of prophecy is about a person. It's about Jesus. And in the midst of all that we say, if Jesus is somehow blurred by the other verbiage then we're not, we're not prophesying. 
We're, we're not speaking the message of God. Now, we will at times need to say hard things to people. But in the midst of that, the message of Jesus ought to be clear. Or we're just, we're just you know, sharing what we're passionate about, not, not the message of Jesus. Because he's the spirit of prophecy. But then the message goes on from being able to praise God at all times because of who God is and what he does. He goes on and says, okay, now what's coming next? And he begins again with a focus on God because the message of the Bible is always on God first and then anything else. And he, and he speaks about the second coming. And I, this is John, saw heaven opened. And so often we see in Revelation pictures because these are visual things that John is experiencing. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So who the one, is, the one who is coming is awesome. And the reason he's awesome is because he produces a sense of aha, you know, when we, when we see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, he's going he's to come again, and he's not going to be riding like he did when he went into Jerusalem on a donkey he's going to be coming on a white horse now a donkey was a beast of burden that often kings would would ride on if they were pronouncing peace has now been established but when a king would come on a white horse he was going into battle and so you see jesus who came in many ways though he said it in various ways when he shared the first time but primarily from the christmas story he came to bring peace to the earth when he comes to the, the earth the second time, he's not bringing peace, he's bringing war. And he's coming to do battle. And that's the awesome one that is to come. And at that point, there'd be no one that needs to be preached the message, fear God, because they're going to start to fear him because they see him coming to do battle. It is also described within the awesome one, he is faithful and true. Now, faithfulness is so important uh, as we understand who God is because if God is not faithful, well, he can't be trusted. And, and what's so unique, and this is what's unique about Jesus, some of these terms can be used of people, but Jesus is faithful to the ultimate. He is never unfaithful, unlike us. We, we, are, you know, we can be faithful a lot, and we, and we pursue faithfulness all the time, but we fall short. God never falls short of being faithful. And in your um, outline, he, I have, he's coming on a white horse. He's faithful and true. But in relationship to faithfulness, but look what 2 Timothy 2.13 says. If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. For he cannot deny himself. In other words, are there certain things God can't do? You know, can God put a round, you know, peg in a square, you know, you know hole? You know, well, are there certain things? Can, can God... Can God make a rock too heavy that he can't lift up? You've ever heard those things? You know, they don't mean anything. But, but the thing is, can God, you could ask yourself, can God ever be unfaithful? And the answer is no, because he cannot deny who he is. And so he can always be trusted. He is true. In John 8, 45, 46, Jesus himself said this about what came out of his mouth. But because I speak the truth, these are the people who, who are antagonistic against him. He says, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? You know, take a, a line from an old movie, because you can't handle the what? The truth. 
And so often, sometimes, that's the last thing people want to hear is the truth. You know, don't, don't conf- my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with uh, the facts or the truth. And so Jesus speaks the truth. But goes on in describing the one who is to come. And he says he judges and wages war. And we're not going to take the time to look at the passage, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 speaks of the terror of the Lord coming and bringing judgment on this planet. He's not going to be writing a peace treaty at that time. He's going to be dealing with the enemy. But then it goes on in verse 12 and it says, His eyes are a flame of fire. I think when we looked at this passage, it's similar to the one in Revelation chapter 1 where it speaks about this awesome one that is to come. Have you ever been given the look by somebody? You know, when you were growing up, it was probably by your, 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 your father or your mother. Usually it was the mother that gave the look, right? They, they gave you the look. And when they gave you the look, you go, oh, my. I have crossed the line, right? And, uh, but now, you know, if you get married, now your spouse can give you the look. And you know the look when your spouse gives you the look. There's, you know, if you're, if you're playing on a, on a team, the coach can give you the look, the referee, you know, whatever it might be. When Jesus comes again, he's going to give the look. And it's going to be that penetrating, fiery look. And in Hebrews 4.13, it says this, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so really, almost by definition, anytime we come into a place like this for worship or you go someplace else for worship or a time where you, you're in a small group studying the Bible or whatever, if you don't go humbly, then you're almost not even there in terms of how, what God wants. Because he sees. He sees through our facade. He sees beyond what people think about us. He knows what's really there. And this is the one who is to come, the one who will see everything. And then it goes on and says, uh, on his head are many diadems. And you know, most of us don't think what, what diadems are, but basically they're like crowns. And on his head are many crowns. And you think, well, what, why did you say that? Well, in those days, what would happen if you were a king and you were, you were going to war against another nation, and if you were to conquer their nation, you had a crown their nation had a crown on, the, on their king, and when you took them, you also took their crown, and you would add it to your crown. And then if you went to another nation and you conquered them, you would now take their crown. And after a while, you have a collection of crowns. We have that somewhat in our day. You know, I don't know if you follow boxing at all, but boxing used to have you know, one champion for every weight division. You know, this person was the heavyweight champion. This person was the light heavyweight champion. This person was the middleweight champion. Now, if you ever read about it, there's so many belts out there, you have no idea who really is the true champion. You know, they have the WBC and the WBA and the IFC and the WBO. And, you know, they, and so everyone's a champion. And then sometimes they'll try to unite, you know, the, the titles. And so some, someone might beat somebody another, with another belt, and then he will come into the ring not with just one belt. He'll come in with... Two belts. And then if you fight somebody else, they'll come in with three belts. And really, this is the picture of Jesus when he comes again. It's going to be no confusion who is the undisputed king of this universe. Because he has many crowns. And then it says, and then he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. 
Now, you're going to be glad you came to church because I'm going to tell you what this name is. No. No one knows. Okay? This is one of those passages of verses. doesn't matter how much you know the original language. You're not going to figure out what that name is because only one person knows, and it's Jesus himself. And sometimes you wonder, well, why did, they, why did they put that in? Why is this unique name so important? Because sometimes when you, when you describe someone or something, maybe it's a, someone showed me off their phone just this past week a, a sunrise. They were in Laguna Woods, and they were up at 530, and it was spectacular. What was, it was beyond description. How, how do you describe that beautiful sunrise or sunset or Seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time, it almost leaves you speechless. And if that be true on the temporal things that we can experience, when we think of God, and and a name can be a name in which you just designate a person, or a name can be a a title or a description of the person. And and this is what this is. It's such a special name. As Philippians 2 said, it's it's a name above every name. That at the name of this name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you want to, what am I trying to do in all this? I'm trying to say that we need to be ready and get other people ready for the awesome one that is coming. Who's described in, in these word pictures when he comes again. He's the one on a white horse. He's the faithful and true. He is the judging and waging war one. He is the one with eyes of flame of fire. He's the one with many crowns. He has the unique name. And he says he's clothed, a robe dipped in blood. And then he says, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, when we gather together, we speak out of the Word of God. But none of us here are the Word of God, right? Yeah, I, I would never describe myself as the Word of God. I would maybe sometimes say the messenger of the Word of God or the dispenser of the Word of God. But Jesus is the Word. And isn't that what the Bible says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Lagos, the full expression of the, the nature of who God is. That's who is coming. And If he was coming to my house to eat after church, I'd be ready. And if that be true for just a social occasion, how much more should it be true of our lives? The awesome one is coming. Are you ready? And are your loved ones ready? But the account goes on, and now we look at some of the things, the who is coming, now the what is coming. The awesome one is coming, but also the armies are coming. He's not coming alone. Look at verse 14. It says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, were following him on white horses. So when Jesus comes again, he's not going to come alone. In many ways, when he came the first time, he came alone. He was in the manger. He came from heaven to earth, and it was just him. But when he comes again from heaven, he's coming with others. Now, some have looked at this, and we don't know how we would describe the armies. It didn't say armies. It says armies, which almost has the idea of multiple divisions of God's company that comes down. You know, it's probably angelic realm that comes with him. It's the church that's been raptured up to heaven. 
They come in clothed in the whiteness of, of God's mercy and grace. You have, the, you have the saints from the Old Testament. You have the saints that were martyred during the period of tribulation. And so you have almost like four divisions that are coming with Jesus. And this, this army is, is dressed kind of strangely. It says of Jesus on a white horse that, as I've read already, that his garment was dipped with what? Blood. So even the, before, before the battle, it's a blood-stained garment. But, but those who, who come with Jesus, they're clothed in that which is white and clean. Now, if you've served in the, the military or just watched people who serve in the military, when, when they're at a, a opportunity to be displayed publicly before a, a, an adoring crowd, they'll, they'll be dressed in their, their finest uniforms. And for some of them, they'll be, they'll be the whites that they have. But if you see them going into battle, they never wear those kinds of garments, do they? They put on the fatigues. They, they put on things that they know that are going to get dirty as they are involved in the mess of a war. And even us, as we, as we go out to do maybe things in, you know, in the outside grounds, we don't dress in you know, pure white. Uh, I've had to repaint my part of my house recently, and I didn't go out there dressed in white, okay? I, I dressed in clothes that I could throw away because when, when I paint, I want people to know that I painted. It's all over me, all right? <laughs> but, the, but, they're, but they're dressed in white. You know why? Because they're not going to, they're going to be with Jesus when he comes to battle, but they're not going to be part of the battle. Jesus is going to do it all. Dipped in blood, he, that's from battles in the past where God has warred against evil and sin, and he's tread, as we looked in Isaiah, I'm not going to read the passage, it's in your outline, uh, that he'll tread with the, the blood of the wine press as his judgment comes. And there will be one weapon when he arrives. Verse 15, from, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. It will come with judgment. And he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on the thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. But, but what will do battle when Jesus comes? And we're going to look at what happens when he comes at the battle, Armageddon. But it says that we don't know of any other weapon other than what comes out of his mouth. Now, when Jesus arrives, I don't think there's going to be this big sword protruding out like a, a tongue larger than life. But, but the sword is often used in Scripture to refer to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that Word we know is so powerful. In fact, in Genesis, basically we have this understanding. How, how did this all come into place? Did it come in by way of accident? Did it somehow come over eons of time when there was a big bang and all of a sudden we figured out this big bang you know, was just some, some thing that happened on its own in, in time and history? It's all this universe came into existence by the word of God. He spoke it into existence. When Jesus prayed over the, the many loaves and fishes and all of a sudden they were multiplied, how did that happen? It happened by a word of Jesus. When the, when the water turned into wine, Jesus didn't get, you know, he didn't throw in some grapes there and start treading on it. By his word. It was changed. When he was, when he was traveling in, on the seas of Galilee and, and, and his disciples, those who should have had faith, 
when they were, when they were filled with fear and they said, well, we're going to perish. How did he calm the seas? With a word out of his mouth. When Jesus comes again, the word out of his mouth will be word of judgment and it will happen. Are we ready? Are we ready and people we care about ready? Are they ready for the awesome one that's coming? Are they ready for the armies that are to come in which Jesus will lead out and judgment will come simply from a word out of his mouth? Thirdly, are we ready for the Armageddon that is, that is coming? Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. So as we see Jesus descending with, with all those who represent him to this earth, all of a sudden the angel now gathers birds from everywhere. There's kind of an interesting side note that in Europe and Asia, there is a season every time of the year where millions of birds flock to Israel. And whether God multiplies that or he does it with other birds, God is going to do something to, to picture how much he hates sin. And, and those birds are gathered together, verse 18, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. No one, no one will be spared. The word flesh is used over and over and over again. And it's a picture, the, the word flesh is used in various ways in the Old Testament and New Testament, but the word flesh when it speaks about mankind, it says there are basically two ways to live in this life. You can live in the flesh or in the spirit. And in the flesh simply means that you're living only by your own means, that you are the God of your life. And you are the flesh represents you're just doing the things you like to do in your flesh. Or you can be people who are in the spirit. And in the spirit means that you are allowing the spirit of God to lead you. He says, all those who, desire, who have been laid in the flesh, your flesh will be devoured. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the throne and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs of his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burned with brimstone. He's speaking in that place of judgment, hell, in which the full time, first full-time residents of there will be the one who was the Antichrist and his false prophet, his religious leader. He says, I have no more to do with you. You are going to be placed in this place of judgment that originally was only prepared for fallen angels. And now you will be inhabitants of that place of torture forever. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with the flesh. Armageddon, which actually is a word, a geographical word. It really speaks about a particular place in the land of Israel. In which many battles in the past have been, have been fought. And then there will be a culminating battle in the end when the armies of the world come to, to, to rebel against the living God and they will be destroyed. 
And then after that, then there will be the separation of those who know the Lord and don't know the Lord, the, the sheep and the goats throughout the rest of the planet. But God is coming to give judgment. There will be a total defeat of the enemies of Christ and the eternal destiny of the false Christ and prophet will happen. I don't even know this, but uh, NASA has a department called Armageddon. You know that? Uh, is we attempt to, to um, venture off into unknown you know, parts of, of uh, our galaxy and, and just to do a variety of different things. We, we also have a, a group that wants to protect our own planet. And the, the, the department called Armageddon in NASA that is trying to protect our, our planet is run by a man named Michael Bay. And Michael Bay is concerned about, as well as many other people are, is that um, there might be some asteroids heading our way. And what are we going to do if one comes that does not get naturally um, disintegrated through our atmosphere? What can we do to save that planet? And if an asteroid hits, it might not hit exactly where we're living, but a large enough asteroid hits our planet, it will destroy life as we know it. And so this is not only a concern of NASA, but people around the world. And, and so what are we going to do? Now, his plan is to send a nuclear um, bomb up to, through the space and to just, just to obliterate that asteroid or, to, or explode it in a multitude of pieces. Now, the problem with that is right now within you know, worldwide society is that that would be illegal. We can't have any nuclear weapons floating around in space. So the question is, well, how are you going to get that nuclear weapon out to hit that asteroid? That would create a problem. And then if we were able to do that, other scientists are saying, well, if you did that, you might take a problem and make that problem bigger or more, more destructive, if not bigger. Because the multiple pieces that that asteroid has exploded, by the time we realize where it is and what, where we'd have to do it at, is those pieces would disseminate and we would have just a you know, plethora of, of things hitting our planet that would create more problems than the plan of that one asteroid. Now, I'm not going to an- answer the asteroid problem today, but let me tell you, God is on the throne. Okay? I don't ever fear an asteroid hitting our planet that's going to somehow destroy this planet. Because when this planet is judged, it will be through the direct hand of God. Not the indirect hand, but the direct hand hand of God. And people right now, and actually because we pay taxes, okay, we're spending millions of dollars of our own money to try to somehow figure out a way to obliterate an asteroid when what we ought to be doing is being ready not for an asteroid, which interesting enough begins with the letter A, all right, but we ought to be prepared, ready for the awesome one that is coming, the armies that are to be coming. And the Armageddon that will happen. So, so what, what's the point this morning? Are you ready? In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it's, this, is a, this is a passage written to a church. Not just, not just to random people out in the community. He says this, test yourself. This is Paul, inspired by God. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Which is, which is probably the simplest way to say, how would you define a Christian? A Christian is a person in whom Christ dwells. If Christ is in you, 
you are a Christian. If Christ isn't in you, you're not a Christian. And that, that seems very just simple how this passage plays out. Is Christ in you? And then he says this, and here's the warning, unless indeed you fail the test. There's only one question on the test. Is Jesus in you or is he not? If he's not in you, you failed the test. If he's in you, you passed the test. So where is Christ in relationship to you? Secondly, if Christ is in you, then what is our mission? Our mission is to go out into a community, and particularly our own community, support what's happening in various communities and around the world. But we are to do what Jesus told the demoniac that he healed in Mark chapter 5. And he, this is Jesus, did not let him, which did not let him, and he wanted just to follow Jesus. He wanted to be a groupie. He wanted to be part of that, that band of brothers that was with Jesus. He said, no, 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 that's not for you. But he said to him, Jesus said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. What does our mission feel? Our mission feel our, is directly our first mission field. We can expand it, but our first mission people are people who know us, our family and friends, people who come into our pathway and, and, and do what Jesus told the demoniac. Go to your people and tell them about Jesus. Tell them what he's done for you. Tell them that he is the one that is coming, that he, he wants to come, and when he comes, he wants you to be on his side, not the other side. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are all, if we know you, to be on mission. And the mission is, whether it's at school or a place of work or in our neighborhood or, or people we do life with in the community with certain activities or events, just to be a light and to be eager to in words, speak about our faith. Father, help us, each one of us, be thinking about people that we know that we should be praying daily for and looking for opportunities just to share the good news. And part of that, that, that motivation is because you're coming and we want them to be ready. And Father, be anyone this morning that isn't ready themselves, might today be the day in which they they say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to live for you. Forgive me my sins. Direct my path. I want to live for you. And when we pray that prayer and mean it, then you'll answer that and come into our lives and make us a child of yours. Help us to, to be on mission for you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand this morning as we...